Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. I'm Eric Holdeman, your host. And the challenges around sharing information with the public about emergencies and disasters has never been more difficult. And that's the topic for today. And with me is Brad Huffines, and he's an instructor on the topic of public information for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Actually, he's been teaching a course on that uh, this very week while we're connecting. We'll be talking about those challenges and how to overcome a lack of trust, something I've written about quite a bit on my blog, and other obstacles that exist with government communications and how that applies directly to emergency managers and other government organizations and personnel. Brad, welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm glad to be here to talk about uh, a subject matter for which I've been passionate literally since I was seven years old, wanting to become a television meteorologist growing up in Oklahoma City. My passion has always been keeping people safe and um, uh, communicating with them, making sure they have clear directions as to what to do. Uh, and there's so many different nuances of that. 53 years later, after doing this for a long time, I've learned so much about people. All right. And uh, since you go back so far, did you have magnetic signs and clouds and stuff? Do you my first te- my first commercial television job in Sherman, Texas, uh, they had ordered one of the computer graphics machines. It wasn't in yet. And so when I started right straight, like three days after graduation from the University of Oklahoma with my degree in meteorology, uh, KXII-TV in Sherman, Texas had magnetic boards and magnetic cold fronts and highs and lows and only used those, I think, about two weeks before they got their first computer system. Okay. And, uh, that, a lot of that fun. Shows, uh, how seasoned you are. You're very seasoned. There you go. Well, I, man, I, I, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to have guests provide a very brief bio. You've done a lot on themselves. and You've mentioned some of these things already. But what's been your professional journey and how did you become interested in this topic of emergency management, disaster, public information? So when I was seven years old in Oklahoma City growing up, uh, tornadoes scared me to death. Um, Whenever I was seven, uh, there was a television weatherman, not a meteorologist in Oklahoma City named David Grant. And um, the only way that I would stay calm, I mean, I would get get panicked to the sake of uh, hiding under beds, hiding behind sofas, hiding in closets when I saw a dark cloud. Uh, I learned an important parenting tip at age seven, and that is don't take a seven-year-old into a neighborhood that's just been wiped out all the way to its foundations. Um, and But David Grant was the only calm voice. He had a he had one of these voices, you know, the old saying, he had a voice that, voice that sounded like a log truck shifting down. Uh, and when, when David Grant was on saying that the weather's fine, I, I believed him. Um, but when I was seven years old, I knew that I was going to, might get, uh, going to get my degree in meteorology from the University of Oklahoma, and I wanted to help seven-year-olds and other children um, not be scared in, uh, in tornadoes and bad weather. So uh, uh, sure enough, I got my degree, started off in television, 
Uh, did that for 27 years. Uh, in 1996, I was in Savannah, Georgia, when uh, FEMA's uh, Emergency Management Institute brought a course called the Integrated Emergency Management Course to Savannah. Um, at that time, I was getting to know the local emergency manager there, a guy named Robert Smith. Smitty was his nickname. And uh, so I started learning about emergency management back then uh, as a broadcast meteorologist. Um, he would call me after the hurricane center briefings. And, uh, you know, as soon as he would get off those briefings, he would call me up and he'd say, okay, because he would invite me to listen quietly. And then he would say, could you explain to my staff what they just said? And uh, when the, the integrated emergency management course came, he invited me to come uh, just be a part of it. I was actually a, 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 in the control room doing media. At the end, uh, the course manager said something to the people, you know, who has anything to add and I stood up and I added something. I don't remember what it was. It was brilliant, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and uh, after the course was over, he came up to me and he said, can I see your resume? I think I want you to teach EMI. So uh, about six weeks later, I was teaching my first class, um, uh, an integrated emergency management class where I was teaching public information. Uh, I knew a limited amount of both. And then 27 years later, they still keep me around because uh, uh, my passion really is clearly communicating with people when they are are stressed, when they're fighting uh, their fight or flight uh, because of stress and anxiety, which means you have to be um, declarative. You have to be simple. Uh, but more than that, there's so much more to psychology to it than that. And I'll, I'll get into some of that today in our conversation. But that's how I I really got into then learning uh, the concepts of emergency management, what emergency managers do, how the whole process works. And in the meantime, I've learned how to teach uh, EOC management, EOC ICS interface, um, emergency public information uh, during in integrated emergency management courses, as well as now uh, basically every public information course that FEMA teaches. And I'm out, out here in California right now teaching the, one of the FEMA courses uh, for the California State Training Institute, which is a part of the uh, California Governor's Office of Emergency uh, Services. Okay. So I probably everybody knows the acronym EOC, Emergency Operations Center, but we are acronym free. So yeah. Um, <laughs> We'll, gotcha. We'll yeah. it good. But, um, and I, well, I was thinking of something besides that when, when you're rattling off everything uh, you've done, and it will come back to me maybe. So I was, <laughs> I was listening more than uh, thinking there. So, I, you know, I've heard and read really, you use the word vitality in yeah. describing public information. And that's not a word often associated with government or necessarily public information. What do you uh, specifically choose that word? What do you mean by that? Yeah, the word vitality, you know, the the uh, the root word is obviously vital. Um, I'm a passionate man. Uh, I'm a very vulnerable person. Uh, I, I choose to be extremely vulnerable in front of, in front of classrooms of, uh, of, of adult educators, I mean, of adult uh, students, adult learners. Uh, because I consider them my peers. Uh, I just happen to be a subject matter expert in something that they're not yet. Um, so uh, vitality takes the word vital and adds passion to it. In other words, I want for public information professionals. Um, I, I, I'm the biggest advocate that you'll meet for the profession of public information as opposed to the position of public information. And if if a public information professionals um, uh, would do their jobs with vitality, uh, I think that they would get more attention, more respect. 
and and a, and, a, and a bigger seat at the bigger tables. Uh, even though um, in the incident command structure, uh, the public information seat is in the command structure, is in the the uh, the, the command level. Um, I, I am I'm teaching and and really passionate about teaching both emergency managers and public information officers how to be assertive uh, with public information. That's different from aggressive, but be assertive uh, to represent the customers. You know, I, you touch on a couple of key words I've used over and over again. I, you know, I have Eric Holderman Associates, and my tagline is knowledge, passion, value. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about what passion does. I mean, if you have passion, like you talked about for your topic, just talk about general. How I, I think t- passion is this launching pad that mm-hmm. goes beyond a job, beyond you know, get get paid. I, I don't. Well, I, I was describing to a, a colleague here, uh, and uh, who's actually kind of mentoring some students in this course. Um, I, I was teach, talking about the difference between a teacher, an instructor, and a coach. Uh, a teacher is someone, and and let's specifically state in like you know this type of training and 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 strategic course, uh, a teacher knows how to do powerpoints and knows how to check boxes knows how to reach the goals, uh, knows what the goals are of the class and checks the boxes to make sure the goals are reached. An instructor uses the PowerPoint slides as a basis for conversation, uh, getting feedback from the students in various ways, but and, but you know, still getting through the PowerPoints and or the, the teaching points with a, with a conversational flow. A coach does what an instructor does, but the coach has a passion for the individuals, not just the class, for the individuals to find ways to connect with every individual that you can in that class uh, to try to improve them, not just as public information professionals, uh, but also as humans, also as people, as um, as as employees, husbands, wives, uh, partners, uh, really getting into their lives. Because I think what people forget is that whenever we take off our, our um, uh, our our government um, hats. When we take off our our lanyards that we wear to and from the office, uh, we go home and we're just regular folks, uh, and 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 communicators especially government communicators. Uh, we tend to communicate in the world of should. People should do this. You should do this. You should do this. I want people to connect with people's is. Uh, what what are they doing now? Why are they not doing what they should? If you stand on a pedestal and tell me what I should do, I'm going to ignore you forever. If you meet me where I am and acknowledge what my is is, in other words, I don't have the same situational awareness you do. I know nothing about um, earthquake physics. Uh, I don't know about the hurricanes. I'm here from Ohio. Uh, I've never been in a tornado. Uh, If you tell me what I should do, instead of meeting me with the knowledge base that I have, and then guiding me to the right place, which is coaching, honestly, that to me is the application of passion. Passion is when one human being connects with one human being. Uh, you can still connect with uh, 100,000, a million, 14, 15 million uh, in, in the place where I'm at right now in uh, Orange County and uh, uh, Los Angeles County. You can still connect with 14, 15 million people as 14, 15 million individuals. If you acknowledge that they are human, if you acknowledge where they are, not where you want them to be, 
And then if you acknowledge um, that you can help them and that you care for them, um, and that to me is, uh, is is how to add passion to these uh, to the profession of public information and frankly uh, to local government. Well, I, I want to touch on one other thing you said. You talked about being assertive. I've used that word talking about a continuum. There, that everybody wants you. Uh, it's good to be assertive, but on the other, the extreme end is being insistent. And you know, sometimes the the, the touch point I tell people. Uh, culturally, you take somebody from New York City and throw them over into California, and they might be coming off being insistent rather than assertive. That's it's a different cultural step. And sometimes the difference between assertive and uh, being insistent is just dependent on the person hearing the language and that. So, any thoughts on that? What I just described. Yeah, it's you know obviously it's 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 being aware of your audience. Uh, I, I think that that uh, and and this isn't just a government thing. This is a human thing. Uh, humans, it, it's hard to be aware, situationally aware of the people that that you're around. And honestly, unless you stop and listen to them, you 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 feel their their tone. Uh, you learn their culture. Um, like you said, you know, assertiveness simply to me in public information means where you see that the that that the, that your customers are not being properly represented, you assert their interests into the conversation. Uh, I'm not saying you assert yourself; you assert the interests of the customer if you see that they are not being represented, and by asserting them into the conversation, uh, you you are if not inviting others to be a part of their lives. Uh, you're inviting them to share with you the information that you're asking for um, because they they see that you are representing the customers with passion and people are more willing to share that with you uh, because, you know, the, the uh, another side of passion is excitable. Um, you don't want to be excitable. Uh, you want to be, be calm, professional, uh, listen to what the customers need, listen to what the people uh, in various meetings or exercises or wherever uh, a public information officer needs to be assertive, and then find your way into the table so that you can learn those things, become a trusted figure in those arenas, that you're not going to say things that are that, that they don't need to say, you're not going to give up their secrets, uh, but you're going to take... Um, uh, the information that you get, and with passion, care, uh, expertise, professionalism, uh, and connection, take that to the customers that need it. Uh, at, at the, uh, the the phrase we use is the right information at the uh, uh, right time. Okay. Uh, so that people can make the right decisions. All right. Well, you said before that the role of emergency management as public information officer has been changing fast. And a lot of that is just the complexity of our media environment, the positions within local government. We're in the digital age. You have fewer local news organizations. It's moved to a national news a uh, lot. And the public many times is not reading articles or reading headlines only to, to get their news because they have so many information sources. So given that environment, why or could you explain what's the challenge that with uh, the changes that have happened or continuing to happen? So the reason that I that I include the emergency manager with the public information officer, um, you know, I when when you look at uh, um, 
at the emergency support functions, for uh, for instance. And now, you know, what used to be the uh, the recovery support functions, now more the lifelines is what FEMA is trying to uh, uh, institute. Um, you see, you know, even though technology, the technological tools have changed, the processes haven't necessarily changed a lot in 13, 14 of those 15 ESFs, emergency support functions. Um, However, in, in, in the, the role of the emergency manager, because of the complexities of today's challenges, um, because of the, uh, of the increasing, in pop, in increasing populations, and honestly, because of the increasing educational level and training level of the emergency manager to where they're getting involved in more, and the public information officer who, you know, let's face it, 20, 30 years ago, you go talk to four or five TV stations in one press conference and you've checked the box. You've told the public all that you can. Uh, today, because of uh, the, the advent of technologies, the social medium, um, uh, data at your at your fingertips, you know, it's funny we call it a phone, and it's actually just a it's a computer that periodically, infrequently, we use to make phone calls. Um, the the public information officer has had to learn more and more about the audience and how to microcast to them. Uh, because the concept of broadcasting is almost a dead art. About the only time you talk to multiple people at once, but on on using a common uh, outlet, is during the Super Bowl or or various big sporting events. Other than that, people tell you when they're available, but they don't. T- I'm sorry, they don't tell you. They tell technology when they're available, and you have to be available when, where, and on the device that they're they're on with the you know on one of the 15, 20, 30 platforms that they're using. And the challenge is they don't tell you where you, where they are anymore you have to go find them, which means you have to know your audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And the emergency manager, I believe, is the person in the local government setting that once they really grasp the importance of public information, can be the public information officer's biggest advocate in including them in training, including them in education, including them in, uh, um, uh, I'll I'll say the chain of respect. so that so that they can be respected for the professionals that they're becoming, instead of the position that uh, you know someone most PIOs in this country are still it's a voluntold position it's the last guy on the totem pole sometimes it's the least trained individual becomes the public information officer and I am I I am um, I'm I that's one of the reasons why I travel the country doing uh, education for public information officers is I want that trend to change. Uh, I want this industry to be uh, covered by people who have been properly trained, properly educated, with the right degrees, with the right backgrounds, and who take this as a profession, not filling a position. Well, I'm going to insert another question here that we didn't talk about in advance. When you talked about you know meeting the people where they are, I also think I, I tell emergency managers this, and I, for the media, and I. I cultivated contacts with the media as much as I could as a local emergency management, still do today. And I always would give them my business card and I'd say, back in the day, here's my home phone, here's my cell phone. I'm available to you, you know, 24 7, seven days a week, uh, 365 days a year, except for leap years, it's 366. That <laughs> if you have a question or you've got a story, that touches on emergency management disasters, feel free to call me. And if I can't answer it, I have over 13,000 contacts. I can refer you to some other good sources. 
because they're yep. going to have to get the story. They're, they've yep. been assigned to get a story on this. And let's get them good people to talk to that have the best information possible. Would you ascribe to that thinking? I, I absolutely do. Um, you, I would rather a, a an emergency management or a public information professional uh, steer a, a a commercial media outlet uh, to who to a source that that we know their credibility than to um, you know happen to say, look, it's a Saturday. I'm not taking this phone call. Uh, they they still have to fill the time. They still have to complete their assignment. I'd rather them talk to um, a professional that we put them in charge, I mean, in touch with, than to call the 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 disgruntled, recently retired or fired, for instance, public works director who has everything bad to say about the city. Um, that that's a way that you know, in today's media environment and today's public information environment, you pretty much have to be available. Uh, almost all the time, because these things come and go, and you never know when 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 you miss that opportunity to sell the positives uh, uh, of a of a story and help them to fill it with the content that you want. If you miss it, chances are they're going to fill it with content that you have no influence over, and then suddenly you've got a meeting room full of people deciding how to react to this story that didn't go your way. Yeah. Well, I think it's just an, a little factoid, really historical. Now, we have the Nisqually earthquake in the Pacific Northwest in 2001, and the first media call we got, the very first one at the King County Emergency Operations Center, came from Australia. <laughs> so you can imagine how worldwide now things really are progressing that, you know, you, you don't know where that call is going to come from. Yeah, I, I get breaking news alerts for where I live in Elon, North Carolina, on my UK Daily Mail app. <laughs> um, I mean, media, international media, local media, national media—they're all so interconnected because um, you know they're all trying to—they're all trying to vie for your attention, um, and and therefore they're going to try to act all the same so that uh, uh, they can. You know, honestly, it's all driven by clicks. You know, if, if someone clicks an advertisement, that's when they get paid. Uh, so all these players in the game, and we've got to be aware of all the players, how to serve them, uh, and and more importantly, how to keep a message consistent, accurate, vetted, uh, and professional, because you never, ever know these days what source of a piece of good information is going to come, whether it's from a local television station, radio station, or blogger, or if it's going to come from uh, an app for someone that's in the country from uh, from Mexico, and he's downloaded a a, a Telemundo Univision app, and uh, um, that's may, that may be the app that they get their local news from. So, so yeah. that's the complexity we face today. All right. Well, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about um, the role of the public informa information officer in the community. Uh, perhaps you ought to explain what that role is. And what makes it so vital? So the so the way that I describe the public information officer, and especially talk in an emergency operations center setting during a crisis, when you have uh, an emergency operations center open to those who don't know, that's basically the clearinghouse for uh, police, fire, emergency services, uh, um, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, finance, logistics, planning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have you have kind of the 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 best of the best in one room to have conversations as big events come up, uh, and they're making you know very vital 
operational decisions in a disaster that affect, in, in the case of you know the, the places where I'm sitting, the place where you live in the Northwest, may be affecting literally millions of people. Um, but without the, the, the spokesperson who can understand what the customer needs, what, what, what they, who understands what they know and what they don't know, uh, and then has access to the information, the public information officer, uh, I, the way that I try to, 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 to influence them is to keep one foot in the shoe of the customer, one foot in the shoe of the operation. Uh, so that they can always go back to the operation uh, and say, hey, the people are confused about this. I'm seeing a lot of, you know, we're getting phone calls at our call center. I'm seeing things on social media. Uh, I'm seeing all these things. I don't think we're doing a good enough job to serve their needs. While at the same time, they're able to go to the, to, to the, to the, uh, to the customers. I don't call them the public. I call them the customers. They're able to go to the customers and say, "Hey, let me tell you what's going on here. We are trying to coordinate. Uh, you know, we we are we are we are to the limit on our resources of uh, police officers, firefighters, and the equipment they use. We're working on getting help as quickly as we can from surrounding counties, maybe surrounding states. Help is coming. Don't lose hope." Uh, and here's what you need to do in the meantime. So that public information officer is the person uh, that that basically it's the it's the one unique position uh, that has um, uh, they're almost like a diplomat between the between the customer and the and the and the emergency operation. Uh, I call the public information officer the heart of the EOC if it runs properly. Okay. Well, this has been terrific, uh, Brad. What I'd like to do now is take a quick break for a message, and then we'll come back and talk more about this topic of public information officers. So stand by. This podcast is being sponsored by COBRA, an emergency management software solution. COBRA provides a cloud-based EOC software that is intuitive, collaborative, and affordable. Visit cobrasoftware.com. And we are back talking today with Brad Huffines about public information officers, their role in emergencies and disasters and relationships sometimes to emergency managers. So, Brad, what are the greatest challenges and roadblocks to the profession of public information officers today? Uh, I, I think the most recent biggest challenge we have um, I, in the past three years, we had a pandemic. Um, governments, local, state, national, had to make decisions based upon whatever data that they had at the time. Uh, I, I choose to believe that the decisions that they were making were, were in the best interest of their customers. Um, that information was changing on a rapid basis. Um, public information officers, uh, lots of doctors, most health departments didn't want any, anybody but someone with, with a, an MD behind their name speaking. Um, we were telling people to do so many things and then restricting their movements, whether, whether it was good decisions or bad decisions, I'm not here to talk about or even have an opinion about the decisions. But when I look at, for instance, communities that, and there's communities out here near where I'm sitting, that that you know sunshine outside very few people outside we're literally filling skateboard parks with sand to keep kids from playing there were you know nationwide people getting arrested on the beach for going to the beach because they've been sitting in their house for weeks um businesses that were lost um 
uh, uh, people that lost their, you know, lost loved ones without ever being able to say goodbye to them because they couldn't go to the hospital. So many things that affected the actual individual lives of human beings were made by local, state, and federal government uh, individuals and agencies. And if you ask, for instance, my my stepfather, who I, I was the, of the two people that could be in the hospital with my mom, who was ailing in a Florida hospital, I was the one that was there one morning when uh, um, she passed after a, a, a procedure that they actually made a mistake and it, and it ended up costing her life. Uh, it, one of us could be there at a time. You think that my 84-year-old stepfather is going to forgive the decision makers that told him he couldn't be sitting in there with his wife. Um, so think about that challenge. That's the greatest challenge I think we have today is, is customers, not just from that, but other, other issues with the, with the, with the politics that we have, the, the inability for people to work together on the political uh, aisle. They all blame that on government. Uh, people look, look at government, just one big bad word. And in the past several years, we have we, we feel like the customers, the government no longer respects us. Um, stability has been lost. Trust, uh, trust in, in in how we can manage ourselves has been lost. Uh, in many cases, hope of it getting any better has been lost. And compassion, we feel as if, and when I say we, I mean we, the customers, feel as if our compassion, as if our our, our government. Um, uh, leaders, servants just crushed us without compassion, right or wrong. Again, I'm, this isn't a political conversation. This is an emotional conversation. So we have lost the trust, stability, hope, and compassion uh, relationship with our customers. And if you 2006 Gallup survey, those four things have to be involved in any working relationship, stability, trust, hope, compassion. And we have destroyed all four of those in local government in the past, uh, local, state, federal government in the past at least three to four years, uh, what, what little was left. So to me, the greatest challenge is to connect those once again, connect uh, the customers with, with a feeling of stability, a feeling of hope, a feeling of trust in their government, a feeling of compassion from their government, because when those four things are in place, then the customer feels respected. If I respect you, you may be you may be you may tell me something some safety information that I don't feel. Uh, a, it's a sunny day, the river is rising, and I don't know it. I don't live near the river, but you know that the river is going to crest ten feet above my head in three days, and you're asking me to evacuate. Looks the river looks fine to me today. Everything looks great. It's sunny outside. It hadn't even rained here. If I feel like you respect me. And you come on and you give me a personal challenge and you say, you know, this may not make much sense. But we're asking that you I am asking you personally to evacuate this area because uh, uh, it looks like your area is going to be under 10 feet of water in about three days and we have to get people moving. So I'm asking you a favor. If that's my relationship with my local government, I may not feel the threat, but because you asked me and I feel respected, there's a really good chance that you have influenced my decision to do that. Uh, so to me, that's the greatest challenge in the roadblock today is the public information officer and the and, and the communications departments of local governments, their agencies. We got to work overtime and all the time uh, to help people feel 
the return of stability, trust, hope, and compassion so that we feel respected because in a crisis situation, you don't have time to explain to me why I'm threatened. Sometimes you just got to get on the air, get, get on my phone. You got to get on my TV. You got to knock on my door and tell me very declaratively, you need to move. If I feel respected, then you ask me to move. Pretty good chance I'm going to move because I feel like you have my best interests at heart. Yeah. And that comes about, you know, laws and states are different, but um, we talk, talk about mandatory evacuations in many states, I can tell you Washington being one, there is no such thing as a mandatory evacuation. You can use those words, but you can't make someone leave. Uh, you can prevent them from coming back, but you can't make them leave. So your persuasion aspect that you talked about there, establishing relationships sounds right on the money. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you feel that public information officers as a profession receive the resources and support and respect they deserve in local government? Uh, on average, no. Uh, individually, it's growing. Uh, on average, uh, every time I talk to, and, and I've, I've probably been a part of education for over 3,000 individual public information officers, and I ask them pretty much the same question I have for the, since the time I began teaching uh, public information is I ask them, first off, do you feel like your boss has any idea how complex your job is? And to the person, every single one of them says, no idea. And I say, do you still feel like you're sitting at the children's table when it comes to the way that the EOC, Emergency Operations Center, is run? Uh, when you feel like, you know, in, in, your, in, your, um, uh, in your government, in your government um, uh, department, do you feel like you're still sitting at the kids' table waiting for them to throw you scraps? Instead of inviting you into some of the meetings and decision-making rooms where you can learn about what's going on and then be trusted to say the things that uh, um, that are in the, the department's best interests. And, and to the person, all of them say, no, we feel like we're sitting at the children's table still. And, and, and there, there's a reason for that. Um, most, when I say most, I'm talking about the numbers across the country. So many public information officers there, you know, they're, they're, it's a, it's, it's part of its money. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of part-time public information officers who literally have no training, zero training. They were assigned, Hey, you look great. You look like you're going to speak well to the cameras, go do it. And he, and someone comes to us, Hey, you're the PIO. And they have no training, no education. They're in many cases, no degree whatsoever. And, and it, it's one of the lowest trained positions in, in, in I'll, I believe that public information officers are, in some ways, information first responders. And many of these people have had no training and weren't just, I mean, they were just told to go do this. Uh, there are very few standards, except for well-organized governments that have really gotten the, uh, uh, the memo on the need for well-trained, well-educated public information officers. Um, except for those organizations, we're, we still have a, a, a terrible lack of training. And until your public information officer is trained, you've, you've brought them in and you've shown them and you've taught them how to work the system and you begin to learn that trust relationship with them, um, that, that, that shows clearly that, that they don't receive the resources, support and respect of the local government in general, uh, except for, you know, some standout organizations that, that, you know, have, have learned the hard, 
that a good public information officer can not just save you time and political face. They can also save you a millions of dollars in avoiding legal problems because you handle the situation right, because you happen to have chosen the right person to guide you through the landmines of uh, of of uh, modern public information. Well, I, I just want to share, uh, this has been an area of passion for mine for a, a long time. And, you know, emergency managers can't do everything that... Uh, the podcast that I think uh, is currently running is about working with elected officials as emergency managers. Yeah, not everybody can do it or wants to do it and all that, but the benefits of doing it are huge. And I worked with a larger organization, two million population, bigger than a lot of states, and uh, we had a communications director for the county, and we had public information officers from many departments, but. I went to their communications meetings. They were just the regular meetings where I then talked about disasters, emergencies. Uh, we worked on policies and procedures. We found some, I call them spark plugs. Rochelle Ogershock was mine, who helped write the Joint Information Center manual. We did trainings and exercises that this doesn't just happen automatically. And emergency managers have a key role in equipping the public information officers to be ready to serve and then providing value to it. And talking about not being respected, I had uh, one of my own staff people, he would complain about the PIOs coming over and asking too many questions. And I said, no, no, we want them to be the most informed people in, in the world uh, on this because we can do the best job. And if nobody knows we're doing it, um, you know, it, We'll get all the bad press necessary. Any thoughts on what I yeah, and, and and more than what what I remember, what I remind public information officers of is you know the emergency operations center and all the emergency support functions can be running like a well oiled machine, and unless there is a a, a healthy information flow between um, the the emergency operations center and the joint information center, uh, back and forth. Um, the you know the, b being a part of the briefings and the meetings and understanding the big picture, knowing enough to ask the right questions at the right time to the right people in the room to get those information to get the information out to people, the to, to the customers who are asking these questions. Um, it, it's it's vital, and I and I and I, I, I we're seeing more and more emergency managers honestly taking. Uh, the basic the, the basic public information courses, the advanced courses, for a couple of reasons. So in some cases, they are their own public information officers in, 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 in many, if not most, jurisdictions in the country. But secondly, they, they're also the training officers. They're the ones who host the training. And they want to go through these courses that we're teaching for public information so that because they have whatever reason, they may have faced some big event where they either didn't have a public information officer and had to stumble through it themselves or did have a really good one and realized, wow, a well-trained, well-educated public information professional, not a position, but a profession, they really saved our community's bacon. We need more of these people trained up. 
Um, so when I see these, these, you know, that's one of the reasons why I believe that 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 this really is an effort not led by the public information officers who many in government look at them as you know, they're still still sitting at the children's table. Even guys that have been doing this, I say guys, I'm from Oklahoma, people that have been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years haven't yet been respected by the people that they work for because they they have that they have no clue what they do. Uh, but if the emergency manager can become their um their trainer, their advocate. Uh, I believe that that's really the key to improve the standing of the public information officer, not just in emergency management, but across um, all of the jurisdictional leadership, uh, because he's he or she is making sure that the public information officers are well trained, are professionals, uh, and and treat it as a profession, not just something to do until the next job comes up. So I really believe that uh, that emergency management uh, uh, directors uh, are are vital and vital in uh, in in making that happen and turning that that uh, key in the lock to get the public information officers more accepted into what they do in the local government. Okay. You know, as, as we head towards wrapping up here, I'd like to go back to something you talked about early in this and talking about writing the ship, so to speak, regarding the relationship between local governments and then the customers who live and travel in that geographic region. What what do you see there? That's really, honestly, the the I, I think the key to that is as um Number one, uh, having departments and jurisdictions think of public information not as a necessary evil, but as the profession that it is. Um, once professionals are hired to do these jobs, uh, not that, you know, not the last person, you know, the last guy that raised his hand, a guy, again, I'm sorry, I'm from the Midwest, last person that raised their hand loses, guess what, you're the PIO. That's how a lot of the people that I that I train got into the industry. They were voluntold to do it. Some of them sparked a passion. Some of them didn't, and now they're off doing something else. The way that we write the ship is to uh, number one increase the level of expectation of the professionalism of the public information officer and the profession of that. Number one, and that's got to come from from governmental leadership to where someone puts their foot down and says, "No, that person's not qualified." Just because they just because they said they didn't say no to being voluntold doesn't mean they're qualified to be in the chair. Let's go find someone that's qualified because with as much training as we're doing with uh, with FEMA and with CSTI, there's a lot of really, really good, highly trained, intelligent, strategic thinking public information officers all around the country. And that number is increasing. Um, the second thing we can do to right the ship is then once they're in place, yes, there's checks and balances. Um, learn how to trust have that trusting relationship with your communications and public information people. Uh, don't sit on just because you have, you know, just because you, you've had bad experiences in the past with a with a, a non-professional PIO who didn't know what to say and when to say it. Give them the give them the leeway to to build up that stability, trust, hope, and compassion. Let them come up with ideas. Encourage them to be assertive to you as leadership. What am I not seeing? PIO, what am I not seeing? 
what are you noticing that's about to hit me in the back of the head? A good PIO will, will have his finger on the pulse of the community, of the media, and of the current events to be able to come to you, the boss, and say, hey, this is happening in the next county over. I'm seeing it. it's getting a lot of play in the media. I think we're going to start being guilty by association. We may want to get ahead of this story before it affect, before we're answering questions that don't affect us. Letting the professional be the professional. And that means making sure that they're qualified, number one, and training, 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 training. Uh, CSTI, uh, uh, the training division in California, they, they, they will, they'll do training for public information officers in all 50 states. Uh, FEMA, ZMI, uh, same thing. Um, uh, you know, there's there's phenomenal public information courses taught by some of the best instructors in the country, um, and and send these people to these trainings. Uh, if 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 FEMA doesn't offer a course that CSTI is offering, send them to CSTI. Vice versa, uh, get them get the people trained up through the right professional organizations with the right people, and then give them the leeway to do their jobs. Uh, and find a way that, that that they can rebuild the respect of uh, government to the customers, so that when things go bad, on that one day when they're when someone is standing up there and they know the next ten words they say could either cost or save thousands of lives, they're in the position to be able to clearly state, "Hey, community, do me a favor. Would you please do this? I don't have time to explain to you." And that's that one moment that we have in people's lives where we can either keep families together or destroy the families because we have we, we've we've uh, lost the trust of the community. And when I say destroy families, I mean mother, father, partner, daughter, spouse, whatever it is, uh, son loses their life, and that destroys the family because we didn't take our time to build the respect, get to know our customers, understand where they are. Uh, and speak to them from where they are, not where we think they should be. And to me, that's a, that's still one of the big challenges, and that's why I travel the country still, is I'm trying to get government communicators to sit in the shoes of the customer, understand how they live, what they hear, what technology they use, and how to influence them without trying to lecture them. And I think the days of lecturing people to do things are long gone in this country. And... I'm just going to wrap it there, Brad. Uh, I, I, I want to say thank you to Brad Huffines for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, once again, um, you know, I, I hope to, if, if you're an emergency manager um, reading this, I mean, listen to this, thank you for what you do. Thank you for the training that you're getting. I'm encouraging you to train all the public information officers in your jurisdiction to get good training. And if you're a public information officer listening to this, um, get better training, get trained up and be prepared for that one day when, when that one thing that you say could save thousands of lives. Right. Well, we, we talked early on in the podcast about passion. And uh, if you guys don't know what passion sounds like or looks like, you just got it from Brad Huffines having a passion for public oh. information. So uh, I just want to summarize by saying a reminder, everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally better prepared for the next disaster. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your professional and social media contacts, all part of the public information officer duty, certainly. And thanks for listening, and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disasterzone.com.
thedisasterzone.com.